Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to sport our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee, or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe? We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. It is hard to believe that we have been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since 2011. So many great conversations over the years about so many great movies. And some stinkers. Well, true. But you know, producing this show week after week requires a ton of work behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our Originals page when shopping for books and movies that we've covered. Just visit thenextreel.com slash originals. Your purchases made through our links give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these great discussions. In season three, we covered even more great adaptations like The Night of the Hunter and It Happened One Night, both part of our Couples on the Run series. We talked about No Country for Old Men. The Coen brothers so rarely adapt someone else's work. We had some fun rom-com adaptations like About a Boy, based on the Nick Hornby novel, and Nick and Nora's Infinite Playlist, adapted from Rachel Cohn and David Levithan's book. In our terribly and naively named foreign language series, we discussed the brilliant City of God and the Diving Bell and the Butterfly, which I won't ever be able to watch again, ever. But could you read the original memoir? I don't know, maybe? We had our Richard Dysart series with adaptations like The Day of the Locust and Being There. Plus, we had that fantastic interview with the man himself. <laughs> the one where we had him sit on the floor? Because this chair was so squeaky. <laughs> Good times. We did our first Tom Hanks series with Forrest Gump adapted from Winston Groom's novel, plus Apollo 13 based on Lost Moon by Jim Lovell. And we did another year series looking at films from 1981, including Das Boot, Gallipoli, and Thief, all based on books. Listeners can dive deeper into all of these original stories and more at thenextreel.com slash originals. Every book, play, movie, video game. Video game. <laughs> you bet. We have talked about some video game adaptations as well. It doesn't matter the source, just follow the link. Every purchase supports the podcast. Check out the full list at thenextreel.com slash originals and get reading, watching, performing, or playing today. I'm Pete Wright. And I'm Andy Nelson. Welcome to The Next Reel. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. 
In just a matter of seconds, you're going to hear a classic episode of this show from back in the day when we called ourselves Movies We Like. It took us a while to settle into the show's format, so you'll notice some differences as you listen to these episodes. For instance, it takes us a bit of time to actually get into the conversation about the movie. Things like that. But we're still proud of the conversations about the movies themselves, and we think they're worth keeping in the library. So enjoy these episodes from our back catalog. And you can become part of our Discord community, learn more about the show, and find out how you can become a supporting member at thenextreel.com. So thank you, everybody, for downloading and listening to The Next Reel. We appreciate your time and attention, and we hope you enjoy the show. How you doing? I am good. I'm good. How are you? I'm good. Feeling good. Feeling good, Flight. Looking good. Feeling good. Uh, have you done anything of note this week? Can I tell you what I've done first? <laughs> yes. Why don't you ask me that again? <laughs> Andy, I'm super interested in you. Uh, but first, let me talk about me. Yeah, please do. I I did a little binging. Oh, another binge. I did some binging. I know this is all the talk of the town, and I'm sure because you're busy and you've been teaching, you got some crazy production schedule going on that you have not caught up on this. But I did it because my wife was out of town for the week. House of Cards season two. Mm. Son, you have got to get on that show. I know uh, you haven't, right? You you finished season one. You haven't started season two. Is that still that is correct? Flight? That is correct. Yes, it's uh, fantastic. I'm not kidding. I mean, I'm really, this is not, I'm not messing around. It's better than Rhoda. <laughs> Thank God. <laughs> it's better than My Three Sons. It's better than, uh, you know, pretty much, uh, it's better than most uh, sitcoms. But what about Car 66, where are you? Yeah, no, it's better than that. Oh, okay. Better than that. It is, uh, you know, it's sort of... Um, what I really wanted <laughs> wanted out of the West Wing. <laughs> People just weren't diabolical enough in the West Wing. That's what I walked away from that show. Ten seasons, I think it was. And, uh, you know, we, we never had... Uh, well, I can't say it. God dang it, Andy. <sighs> yeah, don't... I want to spoil... Oh, I want to spoil this show for you so badly. It's everything I can do not to talk about it. I'll just blurt it out. Don't do it. <gasps> or... Oh, this is what I'm going to do. Okay, so I'm done talking. When we're finished, I'm going to insert when I'm producing the show. Don't do that. Because then you're going to go listen because you always listen to it, and then I'm going to spoil it for you that way. You're, you're Okay, let me tell you something. You're not just spoiling it for me. You're spoiling it for dozens of people. My friend, you know, our, our, our mutual friend of the show, Kurt, uh, was sending me texts um, as I was watching it, and... <laughs> He was saying things like, have you gotten to the occult bit? Uh, or did you see the polar bear? And, <laughs> you know, he did it enough times, and there was stuff that was close enough that I really was second-guessing myself. By the time I got to the last part, I was like, where is the polar bear, <laughs> you That's moron? Nice. It was, it was uh, it's pretty horrible. So I might need to do a little subliminal editing for you, for your benefit. You're evil. Mm-hmm. I'll never be able to listen to this episode now <laughs> unless I go binge, binge watch House of Cards season two. I hope you do that. I hope I do too. Mm-hmm. What have you done this week? Anything good of, of yourself? <laughs> Nothing good of myself. No, it's been a it's been a busy week. It's uh, a spring break, and 
uh, family's been in town and it's just been uh, a week of entertaining and exhaustion. <laughs> That's really where I've been all week. Well, that's unfortunate. Yeah. All right. Well, I got nothing. All I got here is a main bus B undervolt. Thank you, everybody, for listening, because this is The Next Reel, and I'm Pete Wright, and that's Andy Nelson. Hello. And we're so glad you joined us. This is a show uh, where we talk about movies and then we spoil it really, really, really well. You can find out more about the show if you head over to thenextreel.com. You can search for the show in iTunes and subscribe so you never miss an episode. Um, and, uh, you know, join the conversation online and your social platform of choice. And now, uh, without uh, further ado, Andy... How did you do against the people this week in the Instagram Guess the Movie Pony Prize Challenge? You know, I was doing pretty good. It was a pretty good week. Uh, I, I It was Don Juan DeMarco was the film this right? week. And, you know, I think it really threw people. I, you know, I liked uh, some of these where you get really obscure images that really have no idea. It doesn't give you any clue as to what the movie is. And so it was going it was going good for the first, uh, first part of the week. And then I think it was the fifth picture where Robot Gremlin was uh, managed to Google search <laughs> enough uh, of the right clues in order to figure out what uh, the movie was. And he nailed it. So Don Juan DeMarco, it was. I absolutely love how he did it. Right, great. his post. Robot Gremlin writes on Instagram. Well, after searching for movies with washed ashore and mental illness, I on <laughs> three movies: Driftwood, The Majestic, and Don Juan DeMarco. Yeah, uh, pretty smart. <laughs> it was very, very smart. That was uh, that was a good find. It was good. It was definitely a good find. find. It's a good puzzle. So congratulations, Robot Gremlin. You are entered to win the Pony Prize. I feel like we're hitting the baseline. Like, it's, uh, it, you know, it was obviously your failure if they get it on the first image. <laughs> <laughs> but by the time they hit five, you're getting into some advanced playing. And and uh, that's, that's, that's pretty good. Yeah, I, I definitely think so. I think, you know, I try to make the sixth and beyond images a little more obvious. So if they're coming in at the end there, then yeah. they're probably just, you know, just the first one to see the easy image. <laughs> Big congratulations to a friend of the show, Stephen Smart, who has, as far as I know, uh, he's one of the maybe very few people to actually <laughs> commit to going and listening to every one of our uh, episodes of this show and posted on Facebook that he's finished. I know. It's like that commercial with that guy who finishes the internet. Yes. I did it. I finished. <laughs> I finished. That's what it feels like. And it makes me think of, it makes me imagine, um, you know, because last week the the uh, hero shot we got from Forrest Gump was, was Forrest at the end of his run with the long beard and the hair, <laughs> and he just stops and turns around. And that, for me, represents everything Stephen Smart has been through. Uh, <laughs> In fact, he probably has a beard that long. Over 126 <laughs> hours uh, of us uh, yammering on about movies. Thank you, Stephen. It is awesome that you have done that. We appreciate you hitting the back catalog and you know science uh all right uh, i think that's uh that's the 
That's the old news. But yeah. I, I love uh, all the people searching for films related to mental disorders. Well done. <laughs> Let's do trailers. You want to? Let's do it. You go first. All right. I uh, The trailer I picked, it's uh, an Australian uh, film by... It's, I guess, the follow-up from David... I don't know how you say his last name. Is it Michaud? Michaud? Michaud, Michaud I think. Michaud, uh, who did... Um, uh, what was it? Animal Kingdom a couple years back that I really enjoyed. It was a really uh, surprising film. I just wasn't expecting it, and it kind of hit me. It's not a film that uh, I, I liked quite as much when I first saw it, but it's definitely a film that kind of stuck with me a while, and it's one that I kept going back to in my head. Really a, a powerful film. And this is his follow-up film called The Rover that's coming out this summer with, uh, let's see, it's got Guy Pierce and Robert Pattinson in it, which uh, definitely intrigues me, the two of them in this. It looks like... Uh, I believe that all it is right now is kind of just a, a, a teaser. We don't get a whole lot of the story, but basically the story is a loner who tracks down the gang who stole his car from a desolate town in the Australian outback with the forced assistance of a wounded guy left behind in the wake of the theft. My sense from the trailer is that the loner is Guy Pierce, and the wounded guy left behind is Robert Pattinson. And, you know, there's something about Guy Pierce when he's... Uh, he's got his Australian accent on and his face is just like a big uh, outback beard and he's just covered in dirt that uh, he's mesmerizing. I just really just the way that he speaks in the in the trailer. It's it's quite mesmerizing and a little creepy. And I am quite uh, excited to see this one. I couldn't agree more. And it absolutely makes up for that horrific turn in Iron Man 3. <laughs> I, I tell you, I've been, uh, I've been, uh, you know, a little bit uh, nervous uh, after that. The hobo turned in Iron Man three. <laughs> this this <laughs> looks like it really makes up for it. It's very intense performance, and Robert Pattinson too. Who I, you know, um, I did you see uh, what was it? The co- uh, Cosmopolitan was that the one? Cosmopolis. Cosmopolis. I didn't, I, yeah, I didn't see that. It, it piqued my curiosity, but I haven't caught up with that one yet. But yeah. He doesn't say a word in the trailer, but yeah. he he also just there's something about him that uh, really looks uh, haunting in this. And so, it, yeah, it, for what for whatever it's worth, the trailer captures some intensity that that I look forward to seeing these guys explore. And and uh, it's one of these films that, judging from only the trailer, um, I, I can imagine changing my opinion about these, you know, particularly about Pattinson. Yeah, uh, absolutely. This it, it looks really intense. It's worth checking out. Yeah, and it's written by, uh, or the story is by David Michaud, along with Joel Edgerton, and then uh, David Michaud wrote the screenplay. But it's, uh, you know, it's interesting. Peaked another thing that piqued my curiosity was the fact that Joel Edgerton actually developed the story with the director for this. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Looking yeah. forward to it. Absolutely. What's uh, yours? Uh, mine is. Oh, I love this. <laughs> Frank Miller's Sin City, a dame to kill for. This is, I'm telling you, you know, this is one of those films, stylistically, um, you know, at least with Sim City, or Sim, Sim City. Sim, a little different. Remember Sim City? Uh, Sin City, uh, stylistically, is the film that captures 
what I imagine in my head when people say film noir. Do you know what I'm saying? Uh, yeah, it, it does. Have, it is. It's that yeah. stylistic. It's like the 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 sort of um, the the high contrast animated, uh, you know, um, a style of this film. It absolutely captures my dream state, my noir dream state. And so that they came back and hit up uh, Frank Miller's second book in the Sin City series, mostly second book. Uh, it looks like he's added um, a, a couple of original stories to uh, uh, to this particular collection. But, um, but we get back Jessica Alba and Rosario Dawson and uh, Powers Booth and Mickey Rourke and Bruce Willis. Uh, and they add folks like Josh Brolin and, and uh, Joseph Gordon-Levitt. Uh, Dennis Eva, Haysbert, the Eva Green, Eliotta, Jeremy right. Piven, Lady Gaga. Give me a yeah. break, Christopher Maloney. I love it's it. A, an amazing cast. It is an amazing cast. Stacy Keach. Who is mm-hmm. Stacy Keach? Uh, I am uh, very excited about this film. It looks like another collection of really great, very intense stories again. And I, I, you know, I love uh, Frank Miller at, and Robert Rodriguez at the helm. I think it's, uh, it's these are are really fun, uh, fun films too. Uh, to sit through so very much looking forward to that and it was you know here's the other thing that makes me happy so this film was supposed to hit october 2013 right right and was pushed to august 22nd of 2014 uh i think that's a good thing in this case we've talked a lot about the movies that were pushed from holidays to you know new year and this is one that that's you know pushing to late summer i think is a good sign yeah, I, I I hope it is. I hope it is. I, I'm assuming that it's just to either finish effects, just like Monuments Men, or if it's uh, just <laughs> something. Did you? I feel like I should insert a laugh track. <laughs> yes, uh, we really you remember that that great effects film, Monuments Men. That's right. That's right. No, but it, it, I'm guessing. I mean, because this is just really, it's like effects. Affects shots, really, 100% from beginning to end. Yeah. So it's a lot of work doing a film like this. Truly, truly. So, so I, that's, that's my assumption. Very, very much looking forward to this film. Yeah. Uh, so, again, what did I say? October, oh, August 22nd, 2014. Yes. Get your tickets now. Sin City, a dame to kill for. <laughs> you know what's always fun about these uh, Sin City movies is looking at the behind-the-scenes photos or videos where you have an actor with like a prop and they're in an entire room that's just all green screen with uh, yeah. <laughs> little frames where windows are and little marks on the walls where other things are and you see the C-stands in the back and everything. And it's just right. like, it's it's the the most uh, uh, like, uh, what's it called? Like the minimalistic uh, theatrical this performance. This is as, as method of, as you can get. Yeah, it's like these actors really have to put themselves in this world that the, is then, of course, envi- envisioned for them by the uh, uh, Robert Rodriguez and his team. Right. But it is always, uh, it strikes me when it, when you look at the stills for this and you're like, wow, there is just so much done to the to make this movie what it is. Absolutely. Uh, you want to, you know, I don't use this word. Speaking of effects films. Uh, we've talked a little bit. This is not a trailer thing, you know. We've talked a little bit about Godzilla, the remake of Godzilla coming up. Yep. So at South by Southwest this week, uh, they brought a, a sequence. I think they brought a portion of the big reveal sequence to South by Southwest. So that should be leaking momentarily. Uh, where you know, essentially, the first time we get to see the monster after this 
um, you know, apparently his 10-minute sequence of massive destruction of Kauai. Uh, and uh, The Verge got an interview with di- director Gareth Edwards. Now, I don't say this about grown men often, <laughs> but if you want to see an interview with a guy who is just plain adorable, you should check out this video on The Verge. <laughs> because... <laughs> Because he's he's introduced, and you can tell he is just plumb stunned that he made this movie. That's hilarious. He is just shocked. He is <laughs> he is fantastic, and uh, I think you know his uh, you know you're reading his his bio in Wikipedia. He is best known for I should say quote he is best known for Monsters, an independent film for which he acted as writer, director, cinematographer, and visual effects artist. <laughs> and he moves from there to Godzilla. Yeah. <laughs> That's just crazy. He's, he's, he looks fantastic. So I'm excited to see this film, and uh, and I think it. Uh, you, but you should mostly go check out his interview. He's he's really he's an adorable man. That is funny. Yeah, too funny. That's what I got. Let's check out our main bus B Undervolt flight. Apollo 13 flight controllers, give me a go, no go for launch. You know that Easter vacation trip we had planned for Acapulco. Uh-uh. Procedures. Go. Control. Go flight. There might be a slight change in destination. Really? Maybe say the moon. <gasps> launch control, this is Houston. We are go for launch. The clock is running. Houston, we have cleared the tower at 1313. Okay, guys. Going to the moon. Uh, Houston, we have a problem. We got a wicked shimmy up here. Houston, we are venting something out into space. It's definitely a gas of some sort. It's like the heart rates are skyrocketing. The Apollo 13 spacecraft is apparently losing breathing oxygen. The emergency has ruled out any chance of a lunar landing. Slightly, I've lost the radio contact. Econ, what's your data telling you? It's, it's reading a quadruple failure. That can't happen. It's, it's got to be instrumentation. The ship's bleeding to death. This rate, we're going to skip right out of the atmosphere, and we're never going to get back. But we're looking at less than 15 minutes of life support in the Odyssey. We never lost an American in space. We're sure as hell not going to lose one on my watch. Odyssey, do you read me? How long does it take to power up the limb? Three hours by the checklist. We don't have that much time. I don't know if you've, uh, I don't know if you've heard of this film, uh, Apollo 13. I think I This is have. a, um, it's a. This was a good one. This was uh, this was a um, a Bill Paxton vehicle. Um, uh, when did it come out? Nineteen ninety five. Mm-hmm. Apollo thirteen. I was. I needed a laugh line on the Bill Paxton vehicle. Come on, <laughs> nothing. <laughs> nothing. I was. I was gonna say, and Bill Paxton and Kathleen Quinlan. <laughs> <laughs> See, that would have made it. Oh man! God, you know I'm, I, I'm I throw off. you these softball bits, and you just nothing. I know. Uh, this is a uh, another. It's a, another Ron Howard Tom Hanks joint, uh, produced by Brian Grazer, of course. Screenplay by William Broyles Jr. Al Reinert, based on the book Lost Moon by Jim Lovell himself. 
That's Tom, right. Tom Hanks, Kevin Bacon, Bill Paxton, Gary Sinise, the the bipedal Gary Sinise, and Ed Harris. And did you know that John Sayles actually uh, did some uncredited screenplay uh, work on this? Well, if it's uncredited, how do you know? I uh, I have my ways. Does he call you? Does he call you on the phone? He did. He said, Andy, I hear you're doing Apollo 13. Let me tell you. <laughs> Let me say this about that. <laughs> uh, no, he yeah. came in and wrote the uh, bits about, uh, about uh, Jim Lovell's mother with the lovely <laughs> Mrs. Howard playing the part. Right, Mrs. Howard playing the part of a gelfling. Is <laughs> <laughs> that too much? <laughs> Oh, this train is so off its tracks. Come on. She's so Where she's adorable, but she feels like a Frank Oz creation. <laughs> she's adorable. Oh, she is Are adorable. Are you in the space program, Gelfling? <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's not a Gelfling. It's the it's the kinder version of a what's a <laughs> one eyed lady. Oh my god, this is terrible. <laughs> Rod Howard, we apologize in advance. No, we really do. That's <laughs> to everyone in the Howard family. <laughs> Since they're all in this movie, they are. It was, uh, yes. So I, I don't have anything else to say about the Dark Crystal. <laughs> okay, let's go back to Apollo thirteen, nineteen ninety five, Apollo thirteen, and this was. Um, okay, let me just let me just tell you. Uh, a thing about my my reaction to this film, and I, what it actually reminds me of, uh, James Cameron. You've heard of this uh, director, James Cameron? I believe so. Uh, because Piranha Two, right? <laughs> I think you're thinking of Anaconda. Uh. Um, the uh, he said something in uh, let's see, it was gosh, when did so Titanic came out in 1997, right? Um, and so a couple of years after uh, Apollo 13, uh, and during the, the press tour of for Titanic, Cameron comes out and says, um, and, and I have no source for this it, other than my memory, but this really stuck with me, so I'm sure it's true. Uh, he, he says in one of these interviews, he says, you know, where we're getting with Titanic when he's asked about the, the effects uh, of Titanic as being a massive visual effects film. He says, where we're getting with films like Titanic and Apollo 13 we're getting to the point where the effects have caught up uh, with the stories that otherwise, like true stories that otherwise are impossible to tell, that are to literally to tell. Like we, we can't authentically tell the story of the Titanic without being able to show the scale of the Titanic, was his point. And same thing about Apollo 13. The sense that the technology had shown up uh, to the point where we could we could uh, articulate weightlessness, that we could articulate the full scope and scale of that rocket reveal uh, when the the Apollo is on the platform, mm-hmm. uh, which is is just stunningly gorgeous. Um, the fact that we can show the integration of um, you know of these live actors with uh, such rich, uh, you know, created scenery. Uh, and make it look so real. And it's a true story, not a science fiction fantasy story, but it is a technically accurate story to uh, the real events of the of the Apollo 13 uh, accident is um, was a real uh, 
uh, milestone in cinema history in the mid '90s, uh, and and I think that is is what Apollo 13 stands for for me uh, in in my my own history of of movie going. Um, it it is part of the first kind of breath of uh, creating true stories that are that are accurate to scope and scale thanks to visual effects. And not even just visual effects, but I think a lot of it is the ingenuity. And I'm not, I'm not, you know, saying that uh, I'm not dismissing what you said. I think you're 100 percent accurate. But I just think on top of that, I think the the cinematic, um, just the smarts of the team to um, to find ways to employ both the all of those new tricks of the technology, which they use so incredibly well all through the film. Where it's, I mean, half the time you're looking at something and I, you, you just don't even know that it's a visual effect. Actually, I would say 100% of the time you don't know it's a visual effect because yeah, it's always yeah. so good. But they also use – they, they find ways to use all of the old cinematic tricks that they can pull out in order to uh, – to to make everything look as good as it can, whether it's, uh, you know, miniatures or um, uh, just, well, the, the, way, just the way that they use, move the camera and position the camera in certain ways. And also, I think uh, the thing that I'm always impressed with that they do in this film is use this, uh, this um, was it, the KC-135? KC-135, uh, yeah. And they did, flew this uh, this NASA airplane, the Vomit Comet, uh, five, between 500 and 600 times doing these parabolic arcs which would actually allow them to achieve real weightlessness. And they filmed a lot of the shots in this real weightlessness so that they could actually um, put that in uh, as many times as possible to really give us the sense that this was actually genuine. You don't have actors hanging on wires that had to be you know, uh, painted out and things like that. And I, I think blending all these tools together created something that just feels 100% authentic from beginning to end. Well, that's that's another great point. The sequences of them moving through the the um, you know the tunnel, um, they're the sequences that really stand out. And I think it's a it's novel that they they went as far as they did to create this sense of weightlessness. And and over those five to six hundred times uh, that they they flew this the KC one thirty five, they ended up what did they ended up uh, end up coming up with? I think less than four hours of film. Um, yeah, not not a lot of footage there because each of these dives is is you know roughly is less than thirty seconds. I think. Yeah, it's so. twenty three seconds. Twenty three seconds each. So these arc. so these shots are short. Right? They don't yeah. have there isn't a lot of drama going on. But the uh, the the kind of melding of the technology in this case and the actor's ability to perform uh, in these twenty second snippets. And make it look as authentic and seamless and not to throw up on one another um, is uh, really a testament to the production of this film. I mean, th- those guys did an incredible job. I was just, yeah. I, you know, I'm so moved by just watching their performances, not even what's going on on screen. Yeah, yeah. They they are all 100% in it. And, I, you know, I think... A lot of that comes from Tom Hanks and uh, Ron Howard, uh, but I think mostly Tom Hanks, who uh, you know has often said he's basically a, a closet astronaut. This is something that he always dreamed of as a kid: is putting on that jumpsuit and actually going up into space. And then here's his opportunity. He became like a, just a, a just intensely 
uh, concerned that everything they did was 100% accurate to what the astronauts would really be doing. And Ron Howard adopted that mentality too. And so between the two of them, they were just, you know, monitoring every detail. And I think that's something that all of the actors involved in the project and all of the crew uh, kind of mentally adopted that attitude where we have to do this 100% accurately and we're going to make this, you know, these, you know, doing equations on paperwork as as nerve-wracking and intense as possible because that's how it really was. And it really comes across that way. You know, even to the point of what's going on on the ground. Um, oh, yeah. It, that, that they built this mission control set at Universal Studios and uh, and all of the, the workstations – uh, you know, in the film, we see all of these actors communicating with each other in this in this uh, you know closed loop uh, system, uh, these headset system, right? And yep. that they went so far as to activate the loop system prop, so that the actors could actually communicate with one another across this giant mission control room, just like the real guys. I mean, it was a real system; it w- it wasn't a dead uh, headset. And and that the the computers they could interact with the computers, and and you know they they went to such a level of detail, uh, even for the guys on the ground. I think is another um, it's another real shining spot in the film. It makes those those bits of intensity in mission control uh really palpable i it's it's fam- it's fabulous you know we've talked about this this whole experience of a formula film and i think right. ron howard is is such an expert at delivering on formula films in a uh, a beautiful and intensely emotional way um, you know he's he's the one i think that makes it feel okay to choke up at the end of these movies right Right. I, I it I've seen it how I don't know how many times I've seen it and I still at the end of these I was watching it with my kids tonight and I still at the end of these movies when he comes back on the air and says you know hey Houston this is Odyssey you know mm-hmm. good to see you again. Uh, is good right, to see yeah. again I just I all three of us are just are are like oh god we knew for the last two hours we knew that they made it <laughs> and we're still surprised and crying that they made it yeah uh, so absolutely. And, and you know, there's just so much power all through it because of the way they develop the the relationships. I mean, I even get choked up when they're taking off, and it cuts to the wives' faces as they're watching their husbands go up in this rocket, and right. you see, uh, I think Fred Hayes' wife kind of start breaking down, and you see that look in in Lovell's wife, uh, where it's just like she's proud of her husband, but at the same time, it's just. It's it's I can only imagine how frightening and, and heartbreaking it is to see your husband going up into space, you know, knowing that uh, it, it's just such a kind of a there's it's not a, the most friendly environments. Right. Especially because she's already been through it. I mean, he'd already spent at that at launch day of Apollo 13. I think he'd already been in the in space 18 days. Um, yeah, I think by the end of this mission, it was 24. 24. Right? I mean, yeah. I think he went into this mission as the, was it the astronaut with the most time in space? Yes. Um, the uh, one of the first people to fly around the moon. Um, and what there's another statistic about it. Well, he, he you know, it's one of those people he'd been with with NASA for a while and had been right. involved. So he ended up just tied into a lot of uh, these important missions at the early days of space exploration. Right. Right. Now there is something I, I'm, I'm just not convinced that they did well in this film, and I struggle with it every time uh, I watch this film. And I, I'm not sure why. And I'm interested in your take on it. 
I have trouble with how Howard handles the passage of time hmm. in this film, right? Because they were in space uh, for uh, just a hair under six days, right? The, right? the mission duration is just a hair under six days. And there are a few title cards that sneak by. Uh, the, the only one I can rem- I actually remember noticing is day four, Um that shows up. I, were there other day title cards? Yeah, there were. Uh, I've seen the movie a bunch of times, and the only one I can remember actually noticing was day four. I I feel like there's one earlier on. I want to say it's day two. Um, when it's the, I feel like it's the day that they do the little uh, dog and pony show for the TV, and then when the accident happens. I, that I, was day two as well. I I think that I think it yeah cuz at least the way it plays in the film they do that bit everybody congratulates them and everything and they say okay we got some cleanup to do and then he stirs the tank so I mean the way that it plays in the film the whole accident happens like literally right after they get off the air yeah I don't I don't know if there was a big gap of time in there but you know it's yeah, yeah I and I, I guess it's one of those things that never bothered me too much because it's uh, I mean, obviously, it's a two-hour film. You got to kind of squeeze all that in there, but yeah, yeah. But you know, I mean, for me, it, the reason it doesn't work—it's not that it's it like it, it distracts me now that I've seen the film a number of times. That um, that I feel like the there should be some more uh, impact on just how long these guys are hanging out in space together, because it feels very much like um, they launch. They stir the tanks, the accident happens, and oh, thank goodness we can all go home uh, by dinner. There are a couple of quick sequences on, in Mission Control where you get this sense that people are sleeping the night there, right? We have some we yeah. have some cots set up, and is it AM or PM, and 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 like that. But I feel like those can sneak by, and to the point where at the end, my daughter says to me, "Wow, that was a really short trip." Uh, you know, they didn't get to the moon. Uh, that was a crazy short trip, and I have to say, no. I mean, they were in space for six days. I mean, they were this. This was a long time. You know that that came as a shock to her, having only seen the film the first time, and it, and that just made me think about the, you know these. This was a this was that's a long time to be hanging out in the same in that that confined space, just wondering if you're going to live. Um, you know, with the same three guys. Yeah, I, I you know I, I guess I can see the point. I, I don't know. I guess it's never phased me too much. I feel like there are more of those uh, title cards that come up with the days. Like I feel like there's one when they come in and and wake uh, Ken Mattingly up. Um, I totally oh, missed that, it. Totally that missed it. Yeah, and I, I can't remember. I feel like there are a couple others though. But I, I you know you know you're maybe right. I mean, obviously it's a it's a long journey. Um, I mean, six days at, in a place where you really are, you know, your, <laughs> your oxygen is leaking, your, your CO2 is climbing and you have no electricity and you have no heat. I mean, it, it, it ends up being a very long time for these people. Mm-hmm. That's my, that's my point. And I feel like it's, it's a disservice to the people that we don't get, um, uh, that, that I don't feel like there is enough weight placed on the passage of time that's all that's yeah. that's that's just it feels like that's a weakness in the film for me um i you know there's otherwise it's there's so little for me to complain about 
Yeah, and I don't even know if I mean I I can see your point with that, but I don't know if I would complain about it. I, I you know it's one of those things I, I I don't know what else they would have done to kind of really feel like the the time has extended. I mean, you feel like if they if they add a lot of additional stuff of the astronauts just kind of sitting there, yeah. you know, I mean, obviously they were sitting there for quite a bit, just kind of figuring things out, resting, sleeping, all that sort of stuff. I mean, I don't know. I feel like it potentially could have just slowed the film down a little bit, and I don't know if it would have helped the film any. Yeah, I, you know, I they they need more montages. Clearly, yes, sleeping this, montages. This is a film that demands a montage. Ah, <laughs> uh, yes. Uh, okay, tell me what else you love about this film. You know, I think the cast is great. We've rattled through most of them. I mean, Tom Hanks. Obviously, we love Tom Hanks. You know. This film, okay, so talking about Tom Hanks. Let's do it. He just, uh, he did this film on the back of having won two Oscars, which is, you know, he, he won for Philadelphia from 93, and then Forrest Gump from 1994, and he's the second actor to have done that behind Spencer Tracy. So it's been a heck of a long time since somebody had actually uh, done that, and I don't believe anyone else has done it since winning back-to-back actor awards like that. Um, so it's a, it's pretty rare and pretty exciting. Going into this film, uh, or re-watching this film, do you think that this performance is on par with those and not even paying attention to what the other nominees are? Do you think that it was something that he should have been awarded or nominated uh, for Best Actor for? Or do you think that because there are so many um, actors really kind of all through this film that it really is kind of an ensemble film and it's hard to single out any particular one person for for Apollo 13 for Apollo 13 yeah yeah um oh man that's a hard question i know i like to ask hard questions i um i feel like this was i i don't know that this stands up necessarily to philadelphia or not to philadelphia but to uh well, I don't think it stands up to Philadelphia or, or Forrest Gump mm-hmm. uh, in, in terms of his reach yeah. uh, as an actor. I think it, it – it, you know what it represents to me more than anything else? It's not so much a standout performance, but it's a standout um, uh, opportunity for him to lead a, a an ensemble cast. Like he takes on the role of captain of this ship and – ends up feeling very much like the commander of this ship you know it, it even in his weakest moments his his communication with Houston it really feels commanding and um and and I liked that piece of it but it didn't feel like a, a stretch in in insofar as it was a role that he was you know to be trite sort of born to play yeah. you know he it felt like he was just sort of doing something very na- that came very naturally to him and not something that he had to work all that hard to 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 conjure up yeah yeah um, yeah i think i would agree with you and you know it's an it's it was a year of of great performances nicholas cage won the oscar for leaving las vegas um, but then there's richard dreyfus in mr holland's opus anthony hopkins in nixon sean penn in dead men walking and uh, massimo troisi in the postman il postino who tragically died as soon as he finished filming that film but um yeah i mean looking at that list of actors, I'm just like, well, I don't know. I mean, he's fantastic, but I don't know if I would have put him in in place of any of those guys. Yeah, no, I, I don't think so. 
Yeah. I don't think so. On the other hand, Ed Harris was nominated for Best Supporting Actor, and I think he there, there's something about his performance in this that that I find so compelling, especially looking at some of the films he's done in the past, like something we talked about that came out, I guess, six years before this did, um, The Abyss, and just seeing kind of the different way that he's playing uh, flight director Gene Krantz, uh, you know, in the uh, in Mission Control, I, I really enjoy that performance, and, and the, there's something really unique about that kind of dinosaur type of character who feels like he stepped out of the 50s and feels like he's saying some of the kind of kind of the the I don't know he feels like he was born of the just that that the idealized America from that the you know post World War II era and just still carries that and the way that he plays that I really enjoy and just those lines that feel so uh, 40s and 50s i i love oh, with all I due love, respect i believe this will be our finest hour yeah it's just like yeah. he just he says those i think in in a way that i always find them convincing and i don't actually ever find them corny and i i just yeah. I, I i think that he really worked to bring that character to life and i enjoy that character so much in this film to me uh his performance is is all rolled up not in in the lines that he does find a way to get away with uh but in when he's not speaking when the you know when the they come back on and uh you know the the odyssey is is gliding down to the ocean right. uh and everybody goes up into this uproar and you know the way he plays that silence that sort of shock and awe uh that the last 7 days happened and that everybody survived as he right. he sort of collapses into his chair and holds his brow is incredibly powerful absolutely uh, sequence of events just incredibly incredibly powerful and i think the same can be said really for for uh uh, uh gary sinise's uh, portrayal of ken mattingly it's it's the um playing the sort of the sherlock holmes role you know of you know we're going to we're going to figure this out um and and his parallel portrayal of shock and awe and oh my god we won mm -hmm. uh is incredibly powerful i think that moment in mission control at the end as they look at each other is is just great for me yeah yeah and gary sinise was fantastic in this and i think uh one of my favorite moments for him is it's that shot that they where when he finds out that he's not going to be on the mission anymore. You cut from that shot of Kevin Bacon finding out the news that he's he's on the mission to that shot of Gary Sinise as he's just found out that he's off the mission, and just the look on his face and just that that whole, the way he plays that whole conversation. I just it's just incredibly compelling, and it's yeah. it's you can tell that there's so much frustration with uh, you know that he has with Lovell because you know. As the commander of the mission, Lovell has to uh, bite off on this decision that uh, that Mission Control has made, and he has to take it as his own. And and the way that Sinise plays opposite that, I just really think is just great, strong acting. Oh, I think so too. I think so too. And the the exchange between him and and Kevin Bacon. The, I sure wish you were up here to see this. I'll bet you do. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> I love that bit. Yep, that is great. Makes me smile every time. Every time. Uh, Bill Paxton. Mm -hmm. the, he's he's 
wonderful in this. And, you know, I think uh, this was the movie where he met Tom Hanks and Tom Hanks uh, somehow talked to somebody afterward because Tom was uh, Bill was saying, you know, he wished he could get more uh, like the leading roles and, and kind of be the front man for some projects. And I don't know who Tom talked to, but he talked to somebody who ended up convincing the makers of Twister to put Bill Paxton in as the lead for that one. And we know how much we love Twister. <laughs> it's a loud one. <laughs> <laughs> but um, they ended up working together again, I believe. Didn't Tom Hanks uh, appear as a uh, in one or two episodes in, uh, was it Big Love? Bill Wasn't Paxton? that Bill Paxton's? Bill Paxton was the lead in that, and I think Tom oh, Hanks I, I, you know, I came didn't, on. Yeah, I never, I, I watched, you know, that's the show that I turn on when I'm traveling and am in a hotel room. <laughs> I've seen like three episodes of it. I don't. I don't really even know what it's about. Yeah. Uh, okay. Uh, so that's Bill Paxton. I thought you know. I thought he did a great job, and I think he's sort of um, you know in this film he's he 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 had come a long um, uh, a long way since uh, you know his since Aliens really. Yeah, weird science and aliens. He's definitely grown up a little bit. Yeah, he's grown up a lot, and and I think moving this this Apollo thirteen transition um, was a big one for him. Moving him into Titanic, which I remember thinking was the first time I actually really feel like he's a grown up. Um, even after seeing Apollo thirteen, you know, Titanic gets two years later, and we get him as um, you know as the the explorer. Uh, kind of running the boat, and it was the first time I thought, "Wow, he looks—he looks like an adult." Yeah, uh, he's—he is. Uh, it, it was—it was a good transition, and and now uh, you know, I, it's funny. I was just thinking about him because he just showed up in this week's episode of Marvel Agents of Shield. Oh, how funny! On uh, on the, uh, the the mini theater screen. I, uh, for me, it was. Uh, I mean, Titanic was definitely one, but it, it just felt like you know. Uh, the right shoe for uh, James Cameron to 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 use because he's worked with him so many times. Uh, it, for me, it was a simple plan and frailty. Those were the two films that uh, that he was in that really uh, sold me on him as just a, an actor who really had a lot going on. I, frailty is a film that we should talk about one day because I think it's just really, really compelling film that uh, he also directed, and it's a kind of a dark dark story that's uh that was uh that was a wonderful film that was uh that was matthew uh, McConaughey, yeah, McConaughey, right? and right. powers uh-huh. booth and yeah, yeah it was yeah. that was a wonderful film and and uh, you, you mentioned bill paxton directed it yeah uh yeah no that's i agree with you yeah definitely uh that's a very interesting curiosity that that not a lot of people talk about but it's definitely right. a film worth talking about and definitely a film worth watching right right yeah. and of course his role as dinky winks in Spy Kids 3D, game over. Uh, and nobody can forget. Uh... Nope. nope. <laughs> Moving on. Uh... Uh, <laughs> the wonderful Kevin Bacon. Everybody here working hard to uh, to get closer to that that number one Bacon number. Yes. Yes. <laughs> no. And and now I think we yeah Tom Hanks and Bill Paxton, Gary Sneeze, Ed Harris win. That's right. You know I have a Bacon number of two. Do you? Who is it? It is uh, Robert Wagner. Oh, yes, you do. Yeah. Yes, you do. <laughs> oh. 
Uh, I gotta love I, it. I gotta I gotta do some research on my bacon number. Yeah. I'll bet I, I I'll bet I could I'll bet I could do two. I don't know Maybe who it I... is right now, but I'll bet I could do it. You think he knows Connie Chung? I know Connie <laughs> Chung. <laughs> Oh, too funny. Uh, okay. Uh, music by James Horner. Holy cow. Yeah. This is... Uh, Iconic. It, it, Yeah. Some of my favorite James Horner yeah. music. And, you know, this was a good year for him because he also did the music for Braveheart. And I think because of that, because he was uh, uh, nominated twice, it probably split the vote and uh, the music or the Oscar went to the Postman Il Postino, which in all fairness, it's really beautiful music. Yeah. But boy, uh, this is the music that for me of, you know, of all of them, the other ones were, uh, let's see, Sense and Sensibility by Patrick Doyle and Nixon by John Williams. But I think even more than Braveheart, this is the one that just stands out for me as just just a brilliant brilliant music it is to me too and i you know it is he's he's responsible for some of the most amazing themes uh you know for for me uh this one is right up there with glory which is one of my favorite scores you know bar none Mm -hmm. um and uh, i think just really highlights his ability to become uh, a character in the film yeah and I think that's what that's really his gift that the that the the music the score, uh, in particular, gives us. Uh, you know, when we're in that spacecraft, it is the the fourth kind of ever present, invisible kind of being um, that is just guiding us. It's kind of with us. Um, it, it's a it, it's like a stake in the ground for us to to reference the, our emotional kind of response to the rest of the of what's going on on the screen. I think it, it is really compelling in this film in particular. Yeah, there's something, uh, I don't know if patriotic is the right word, but it feels very uplifting. And uh, it really, it, it, the, like the during the launch, when the music uh, soars when they're launching, I mean, it really does kind of lift your spirits and just you feel so uh, positive and optimistic about you know, the future of space travel and everything. I mean, it's like the music is there and it's just filling all that emotion in. And at the end, uh, just all the music at the end uh, as they're coming down. And then I think as soon as the movie ends and it kicks into that kind of the vocal work by Annie Lennox, oh man, it just uh, it's just amazing. It really, it's a powerful score. It is a very powerful score. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay. Who else do we want to? Oh, uh, so where do, do you want to talk about cinematography or uh, effects? We've t- well, sort of yeah. talked about effects. Yeah, and but you know, the two together obviously work together. But uh, uh-huh. Dean Kundi is an amazing cinematographer who uh, makes pretty pictures. Um, and you know, what did we talk about him on? We talked about him on uh, something, didn't we? Um, oh goodness. He's worked with Robert Zemeckis a lot, but uh, not on Forrest Gump. Forrest Gump was, I think, a, a new DP for um, for Zemeckis, and I maybe we haven't talked about. I Dean don't. Kundi I don't before. think we have. I think we've talked about him sort of peripherally because of. Um, gosh, was it, when did we talk about him? Was it around the Blob? Oh, he did the thing. Yeah, or the, I, thing, I, the I, thing. I knew we had. Thing. I knew we had talked about him at some point. But yeah, yes. he had he had done a lot of Carpenter's early work, and then he started working with um, Zemeckis in, uh, I believe, on Romancing the Stone, and worked with him all the way through Death Becomes Her, and and uh, he's worked with Spielberg before Jurassic Park. 
you know, it's a cinematographer who knows how to capture the look of a period. Certainly, you know, this being 1970, he just captures it, the, the look and everything. And then also all the tones and everything. And, uh, in the ships, the, all the different uh, command modules and everything. And just everything really feels 100% authentic. I mean, to the point where when some of the astronauts actually watched the film, they came up to um, the filmmakers and were like, man, I, I saw some shots, some of the stock footage in there that I had never seen before. Where did you, what vaults did you find that stuff in? Because they were so convinced that some of the shots that Dean Kundi and Ron Howard put together for the film and the visual effects teams um, were actual uh, authentic pieces of stock footage of, of actual takeoffs. It was, um, you know, we should add that this was one of uh, Ron Howard's um, sort of uh, stakes for this film was to not use any of the stock footage. Uh, from right. it was, but to create original uh, sequences for the for everything uh, related to uh, the spacecraft. So, yeah. Yeah, not not everything. Cause, I mean, the spacecraft, yeah, but like the moon, they actually used real photos that yes. some of the other missions had captured of the moon, and they d- kind of digitally cleaned them up and everything. But those are actual shots of the moon. And even the shot when they, they I believe it's the shot when they come around the moon and they see the Earth and the, kind of the Earth rise. Yeah, over Earth the rise, moon, right. And you have, you know, Tom Hanks holding his thumb up and everything. I believe that's an actual photograph. Uh, I don't know if it's it's uh, that Jim Lovell took, but one of the missions had taken, and they used that actual photograph of the Earth uh, in the film. So it's, uh, yeah, I, it's, I don't know. I just think the cinematography in this film is, is very effective, and it's invisible, which is, you know, in a film like this, you want it to really just be invisible, so it puts you right into the place and right there with the with the actors. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And and you know to that point about uh you know the the footage that they do use. I think they they make most use of it in in terms of you know the the uh the journalist footage, you know, the television coverage right, Cronkite right. in particular which is I think a a really nice touch. Um uh, but but generally the the scope of originality in recreating this story and make it seem so authentic is is what is I think a, a real lesson um, with this film. Yeah, and it sets up the most fantastic character joke in Arrested Development, uh, season four. <laughs> Which was what? Well, it's just you know Ron Howard is all over it. And, oh, right. and he actually his office he has the lem in his office. Right, right. <laughs> it's his secret talk secret talking room. <laughs> That's right. That is pretty funny. <laughs> anyway, um, and you can find the uh, that NASA has apparently recreated the Apollo. I think the Earthrise. What I'm finding here is that the Earthrise was from the is the iconic Apollo eight shot. Oh, and that was the first one that yeah. uh, that was the first trip around the moon right. that Jim Lovell was piloting. Right, right. right. So, good times. Oh, good times. You know, we didn't um, uh, we didn't mention Kathleen Quinlan too much, but I do feel that a lot of films like this, you know, whether it's a sports film or something that we're just focusing on on guys doing, you know, trying to you know, accomplish something, whether it's winning a game or, or making it back to earth. I, I feel like the wife characters are uh, kind of just left on the periphery 
too often and aren't very interesting. Yeah. And I feel that they really worked hard to to craft uh, Kathleen Quinlan's role as uh, as Lovell's wife. I, I, I think that she plays Marilyn Lovell just so well in this and the strength that she has and the uh, the fears that she's hiding from her kids and the way that she's dealing with all the situations and talking with the different people. I, I feel like there's a strength in her character that uh, we don't see often enough in, in the, the kind of wife character. I, I feel like it's become such a cliche character, which is unfortunate because I feel like there, there's no reason for it to be. Um, and, and I'm, I'm really grateful that the filmmakers chose to make her a strong character in this story. And I wish that they continued to do that in other stories. But Kathleen Quinlan, I think, does great in this part. She was nominated for a supporting actress uh, for this film and lost to Mira Sorvino. But, um, you know, she went on to do some other great films. And, you know, just a couple years later, she did Breakdown, which, you know, that's kind of a guilty pleasure of mine. I don't know if you remember Breakdown with uh, her and Kurt Russell, but, man, that film just freaked me out. <laughs> I, I don't. I don't actually think I've seen it. It's the one where they're a couple. They're they're on a road trip or whatever, and their car breaks down, and, and you know, a trucker gives her, a, a, you know, picks her up to take her up the road to a, a – a gas station to call for help and she never comes back and kurt russell has to kind of go on try to figure out what happened to her and oh. nobody's seen her and all that well this was remade that? with uh Kiefer sutherland too wasn't it the same story no you're but thinking from the other of, perspective uh no you're thinking of the um that, it uh, was not good no you're thinking thinking of a totally different film yeah, no, I know, but it, it was that's the why I I, I kind of pair the, it with yeah, this. Yeah, the, the Kiefer Sutherland, uh, where he's yeah. the bad guy, and or that's that's no, not, he's the good guy. Something... Jeff Bridges is the bad guy uh, in the one you're thinking of, and it's oh, uh, maybe that's right. Yeah, I'm blanking on the name of that one, but it was a, yeah. that was a terrible remake of a great great foreign film. But no, this no, was that is a, different. You're right. You're right. No, I get yes, it. Yeah. Uh, but it wasn't so. It, but it wasn't the same thing where he had to go. You know. No, crawl, he has crawl to, in a box and be right and be buried ethered, and yeah. die. No, <laughs> yeah, totally different film. All right, but um, no, breakdown is a. It's definitely a, a great. Well, I need to. See, I need to see that. I'll add yeah, that to it my is list. fun. It is fun, and she's definitely keeping busy. But you know, I just don't uh, see her in a whole lot of things. But. Um, but there it, was the role of women in this film is interesting because it's you know it's like there's everything that's happening in space and in Houston, uh, or in Mission Control, and then the. So much of the film, even generationally speaking, is anchored by, you know, the women. And and this is a film where, I don't know, it's, while on one hand it feels a, a little bit sanitized uh, mm-hmm. to me. Like, I, I it feels like, uh, you know, I, was, I wasn't there. I don't know what kind of terror they were feeling, but it feels a little bit, um, a little bit sanitized. It also feels like very much an anchor, Um kind of an emotional or cultural anchor to the other parts of the terror of the real story, you know, that we get, we get kind of a break, um, to, to, you know, when at the film is at its most intense, we get a little bit of a break when we come back and, and watch how the women are, um, are kind of realizing and, and experiencing the the news in real time, and and having to be that that sense of force for their kids and and uh, you know extended family. It's you know it's interesting. It it's not the most compelling part of the film for me, and I you know I don't know, and I couldn't find. I actually looked for um, you know folks who may have written 
more articulately than I have experienced the role of women in this film in particular. To me, it's, it's, I mean, she was, she was good, but it was, it, it was a little bit, like I said, sanitized, uh, Hmm. for my for my sense of it do you do you find that it's that way because um the way that they describe it is that the the wives of astronauts at this time i mean this is a time where obviously uh, women weren't astronauts uh yet which is an unfortunate thing but obviously they became astronauts later but they were very much um, trained. I mean, these wives were actually trained in like PR and press and marketing, essentially, because they had to be kind of the face of their husbands. And uh, uh, I mean, just trained like their husbands were, but obviously when their husbands are up in space, it's just the wives. And they really had to kind of be the uh, the spokesperson for, as as Marilyn says, you know, remember, you're proud, you know, honored and thrilled they really had to have a facade on about, you know, just kind of being on and being kind of a representative for their husband, for NASA, for the space program, for, you know, in a sense, even for that branch of the government. I mean, it's 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 an interesting position that the women were put in uh, just by being married to one of these guys that they kind of had to just go along with. And, I you know, it ma- it makes me wonder if it comes across that way for you as kind of sanitized because that's the way that the scriptwriters just wrote it. And it's not that interesting for you, or if it's because it's, it, they're trying to depict the reality of, of what these women actually had to play at. And because of that, you're feeling it just like people were like the audience or the, the, you know, the, the people watching them back in those days we're feeling. You know, I appreciate that you that you bring that up, and that may be uh, that it may be that intentionality that I am experiencing here. But it could also be, as I reflect on it, that you know uh, we have seen since then. Uh, I would say, you know, in the last decade, when we see films that depict uh, the relationship between men and women in this particular period, uh, it it is a different relationship. Right. Mm-hmm. It, it is, it, you know, I, I don't mean to ca- crawl back to Mad Men, but that Mad Men has sort of changed the nature of our memory of the the gender split of the, you know, 50s, 60s and, and early 70s. And I think that's what I'm what I'm kind of uh, experiencing. This, this is this is and it's not the point of the story. Right. But I find right. myself actually saying, gosh. Wouldn't it be interesting to actually have a, a more uh, kind of, uh, or I should say, a deeper dialogue on this? Now, where did they get it right? They got it right in the Tom Hanks produced uh, HBO series from the Earth to the Moon. There was a whole mm. hour that actually dealt with this very thing and what you are talking. Have you seen the series? Uh, you know, that's on my on my uh, list of shame right now. It's fantastic. It really is fantastic. And it, you know, it covers, I think, what I'm missing. And that's what I find when I watch Apollo 13. I want more of From the Earth to the Moon, which catalogs that experience of training and media training and always be happy even with your, when you're scared. And, and the sense of just how jaded they were after they became experienced astronaut wives we get this you know there's a sequence in apollo 13 where he says you know uh, you know that uh, vacation trip we had planned uh, i think we're gonna need to go to the moon you know i mean he does that little thing and she goes ah! 
oh, gives him a huge hug. And in the from the Earth to the Moon uh, version of that, it's not nearly as clean. It's you you get much more of the oh my god, I cannot huh. believe I'm going to be dragged through this again, um, kind of experience. And particularly from Marilyn Lovell, who right. is the spouse of the guy who had the most days in space, right. that she was portrayed as somebody who was just all around, always enthusiastic, and, and I, I just felt like not enough dirt, uh, yeah. not enough frustration, not enough horror uh, of just having to be the spouse of an astronaut. So I know I'm asking for a film that, that doesn't exist, right, or, or it exists in a whole different kind of uh, mode. Um, but, but that's what I felt that I think that's what I mean when I'm talking about how sanitized it was. Well, and you know, I, I, I think that there's a lot of, uh, uh, a, there is something to that because Ron Howard even acknowledges that he is a kind of a, a, a popular cinema director, right? Leading up right. to this point, 1995, he hadn't directed anything of this scope really. Right. I mean, he had directed, uh, what, what was he just coming off of? He had just done, uh, was it the paper that he had just done right before this? And um, his, all of his films, starting with, uh, you know, way back at the beginning with uh, Grand Theft Auto, Night Shift, Splash, Cocoon, Gung Ho, Willow, Parenthood, Backdraft, Far and Away, The Paper, Apollo 13. I, I mean, maybe Far and Away, it seemed like he was trying to be a little more serious, um, definitely more epic, but it really was just kind of a popular story kind of just a you know love story epic sweeping all that sort of stuff this one seemed to be taking on something a little more serious that he was trying to do something that had a lot of technical stuff going on he had a lot of stuff that uh just seemed like maybe he was dealing with things that weren't in kind of his normal realm because even after this you know ransom ed tv how the grinch stole christmas i mean it isn't really till a beautiful mind that it seems he's trying to do something important and serious again and and maybe if it was in the hands of a different type of filmmaker, there would have been a little bit more of a, uh, you know, a, a more insightful look at at uh, Marilyn Lovell's uh, thoughts about this mission that um, that may have, you know, I, I don't want to say it would have made for a stronger film, but it certainly would have made for a film that that was looking at other aspects um, uh, you know, in a little bit of a stronger fashion. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. It just a little bit more well well rounded, and that I think is why I I resonated so much with the entire series of for the Earth, from the Earth to the Moon because it gave me what I loved about Apollo thirteen, uh, in you know whatever it was thirteen hours, uh, right. where they had the opportunity to uh, to create more of a of an insightful um, review of of historical events. Yeah, and that was actually. Um, Tom Hanks's first uh, journey into producing, stepping outside of acting and doing some producing. He produced, right. was the uh, executive producer of of that uh, that series that came out in '98, which was, again, great. Yeah, and he got I, to yes. say from the Earth to the Moon like a thousand times. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I really need to watch that. As a Tom Hanks fan, it's embarrassing yeah. that I haven't watched yeah. it. It's there are some really terrific performances in that series. Yeah, yeah. Uh, okay, I think we need to we need to power through here. What else do you give me? The last couple. Um, I, I just want to mention that uh, it's a it's an obscure actress who's in this, but Tracy Reiner she plays uh, Mary Hayes, Fred's wife, 
and she's kind of the newbie uh, wife that uh, that Kathleen Quinlan is you know talking to. Right. Um, I'm only mentioning her because I, I don't know what her relationship is. I, I think that she somehow is in with the uh, the Marshall family, Penny Marshall, Gary Marshall, because she has ended up in a lot of their films. And because of that, has ended up acting in a lot of movies with Tom Hanks. I mean, more than John Candy, more than Meg Ryan. And sure, there are little parts like in Nothing in Common, she was the young saleswoman. In Big, she was test market researcher. Um, but she's ended up in a lot of films with him. She was in A League of Their Own, Own as Betty Spaghetti. She's in This as Mary Hayes, That Thing You Do as Anita. And was that the last one? I think that was the last of the things that she had uh, been in with him. Um, and then she continued to be in other Gary Marshall and Penny Marshall films. But I was surprised when I was looking at filmographies to see that she had been in so many of Tom Hanks's films. That's very funny. She's been yeah. in a lot of stuff. <laughs> I know. She's one of those yeah. uh, kind of, you know, faces that you see yeah. in films. Yeah. Funny. All um right. the and then um the sound, I think the the sound in this film is stellar. I think they rightfully won an Oscar for the amazing sound work that they did. I mean, it really feels like you're you're at a mission launch when you're watching this rocket take off. I mean, it's it's just incredibly powerful. Absolutely true. And and the sound inside the the ship. I mean, it, it really uh, when you watch Gravity, you you feel uh, you, you sort of watch these films in parallel. You feel the this kind of genetic history of of uh, of Apollo thirteen in in Gravity. Right. I, I think they really capitalized on what it sounds like, uh, kind of in in space. Right. 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 In yeah. I should say in equipment. You know, I think they did it was it was great. Yeah, absolutely. The um, uh, and then what was the last thing I was going to say? Let's see, now I lost my train of thought. I did that. I'm sorry. You did. You did do that. Um, eh. all right. Lost in the ether. It's gone. Mm-hmm. It's gone. All right. Uh, so let's talk about uh, dollars for donuts. Dollars for Donuts. This film uh, did pretty well for itself. It, uh, uh, you know, 1995, it cost $65 million to make. I, you know, I'm always amazed when I see what movies cost back then. It's not that long ago, but you hear budgets these days, and it's like, wow, that's yeah, $65 that's million they did. That's a steal. I know. Uh, but, uh, yeah, it, it went on domestically to make almost $174 million. Internationally, $181 million. Um, and when you adjust everything, it ended up making about uh, just over $3.1 million per finished minute. So it's coming in number 14 on our list of films uh, based on cost per finished minute adjusted for inflation. Mm, number 14. Mm-hmm. Big question. Right, right behind Sleepless in Seattle. Oh, Tom. <laughs> Uh, let's see if it breaks number 14 in the flick chart list. Yeah, let's see. So head over to flickchart.com slash the next reel. You can like us over there, friend us or whatever you do. And then, uh, you know, you can see our stack rankings, uh, of all the films that we've done. And, uh, you know, you can jump from the website, the in the extras menu, you'll find, or there's even a button. It says our golden list, the next reel on flick chart. You can find our top 100 and uh, see if our top 100 matches your top 100 favorite films forever and ever. Amen. Mm-hmm. Let's do it. Apollo and 13 go. or The Bourne Ultimatum? 
totally Apollo 13. Yeah. Yeah, I'm going to say Apollo 13. All right. Apollo 13 or Moneyball? Oh, dang it. I'm still saying Apollo 13. Don't get me wrong. Moneyball is an amazing, amazing film, but Apollo 13 shakes my emotional core. <laughs> okay. Well, I would, I would feel petty for choosing anything else. Emotional core. Yeah. What can I say? All right. Ed Harris versus Ed Harris. Apollo 13 or The Abyss? Emotional core, Andy. <laughs> Uh, the Abyss hits my emotional core, actually, quite a bit. But Apollo 13. Is, really? Uh, it's a stellar, stellar film. Man. This is really hard. I just want you to know it's really hard. I know. No one said life is easy. I'm going to say Apollo 13, too. All right. All right. Uh, every single time. <laughs> <laughs> Apollo 13 or All the President's Men. All the President's Men. All right, sell me on it, because I want to say Apollo 13. Okay, see, the problem is they're both true stories. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> That's right. Uh, I, you know, gosh. Ultimately, if we're comparing these... First of all, I, uh, I, I love the intimacy of... Uh, All the President's Men. I think it is a mood that I I really resonate with. I think the performances are outstanding. And I think ultimately it covers a story that was culturally more important to us as a people than Apollo 13. Boom. Mic drop. Wow. I I don't know if that sold me, but I I will give it to you. You know, you you tried. (laughs) (laughs) Apollo 13 or No Country for Old Men. That's a tough one. See, I... uh, Man, No Country. That's a great movie. I I feel like... like Oh, go ahead. No, I'm I'm waiting for you. I I feel like I owe you now. I, I think I like Apollo 13 more, but I think I would be more compelled to put No Country for Old Men on again. That's which strikes me as strange. I, I don't know why that is, but maybe it's just the crime aspect of it. I just uh, this, you know, I'm yeah, drawn to the stories. I know, but this is one of those where, interestingly, I would probably be more likely to put on Apollo 13 and still might go with No Country. Oh, that is interesting. So where are we with this? <laughs> I think it's No Country. Yeah, I think it is. All right. Apollo 13 or Aliens? Little Bill Paxton. Bill Paxton on Bill Paxton action. Right. Well, oh, yeah. that's a uh, aliens. I agree. It's aliens. That's yeah. ah, that's a really hard one. I feel a little guilty for saying that one. Yeah. Apollo thirteen or Zodiac? There's a one we haven't talked about in a while. Zodiac. Boy, there's another compelling uh, true story film. I know, but I'm going to go with Apollo thirteen on this one. Yeah, I am too. Number fourteen. Speaking of fourteen. <laughs> That's pretty funny. Apollo 13 is number 14. That's so, fantastic. Uh, yeah. So would you have picked this for best picture that year? The uh, nominees were Apollo 13, Babe, which is uh, the one that always strikes me as funny, Braveheart, The Postman Il Postino, and Sense and Sensibility. Wait, I was, Braveheart, I was reading something. Braveheart won. I, I think Braveheart was probably the, the right choice. I don't think so. I think you Apollo think it was 13, Apollo 13? Yeah. I, I think 
I think at the time I may have said Braveheart, but I think I would have kicked myself uh, if I had actually been voting. Just watching them, and I haven't watched Braveheart recently, but I, I think there is something really, really uh, just truthful and compelling about this film that uh, that I think is just an amazing cinematic feat. And as much as I do love Braveheart, I think I would have picked Apollo 13. Hmm. Okay. I I uh, I think it's I I still think Apollo th- or uh, Braveheart was probably the right choice and I, um, uh, I I I think it it won because of well interestingly I think it it won because of it's it's a landscape film. Yeah, it's definitely quite. It, yeah. You know, yeah, people people dig yeah. the landscape films. Yes, they do. All right, hey, uh, this is good. This is where do we go from here? Well, we're uh, we're going to conclude our Tom Hanks oh, with uh, the famous uh, Tom Hanks werewolf film Turner and Hooch. <laughs> Have you been waiting for that like since the beginning of this series? You just really wanted to throw that in there. Have you been? Do you ever watch uh, Between Two Ferns? <laughs> I, I I watched the the most recent one that uh, everyone is talking about, where he talks to President Obama. <laughs> so where he gets Bruce Willis on there. <laughs> Yeah, Bruce Willis doesn't say a word for like the first three minutes, and he just keeps asking questions like, <laughs> "Do you know some actors turn down roles?" <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I'm sure you can see how that's relevant. Yes, I know. <clears throat> uh, <laughs> <sighs> You're saying, where do we go from here? Uh, we're going to conclude our Tom Hanks series, uh, and kind of pay tribute to our baseball series from the past two years um, that we've been doing. I don't think we're... Uh, uh, I think that this may be the uh, the the final feather in the cap of our baseball series. Uh, <laughs> we're just we're, run out of movies. <laughs> we're, we're like, unless people have some baseball movies that they just really think we need to be talking about, we've kind of looked at all the other ones out there. We're like, yeah, I think we talked about a good number of them. I think we're good. But we're going to finish it off with a league of their own. A league of their own. Yeah, so we, we're stepping a little back in Tom Hanks' chronology, but we're going to finish it off with a, uh, a, the fun baseball film from 92. John Lovitz. <laughs> uh, yeah, so that'll be good. Yes, that'll be good. League of their own. I don't know what to, it's been. It has been, I think, I, the oh gosh. Well, let's just say it's been over a decade at least since I've seen League of Their Own. That's a long time. Which, yeah. I'm curious time. to talk about this one um, to see how it's aged. Because I, I really uh, have always have loved it. I just haven't seen it in a very long time. Very Either. long time. That'll be good. Uh, okay, League of Their Own next week. Um, I, think that's, uh, I think that's all we have to talk about. For the people. Yeah, I think so. I think I'm going to go start the tanks now. <laughs> Oh, I gotta go uh, visit the Constellation Urine. <laughs> That's a horrible place to go visit. Have fun. <laughs> I won't be joining you. I gotta go to bed. <laughs> <laughs>
I've been podcasting since 2006. In that time, I've tried countless hosting platforms. But in August 2022, we switched to Transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM. And it's been a game changer. I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content. And we do. If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. And their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. The detailed analytics are invaluable, too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. After using countless hosting services over 15 plus years, Transistor has been hands down the best podcast partner for us. If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world, go to thenextreel.com slash Transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show by going to thenextreel.com slash Transistor. Start growing your podcast today. Today.